Let's pray together and ask for the Lord to give us all that we need, both to preach and to hear the word of the living God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so thankful that you have made yourself known to men, for you are under no obligation to give yourself to us, to make yourself known to us, but yet you've done so out of your grace and out of your mercy. We pray for the preaching of your word today as we open up together in the book of Judges and to consider what our Savior, what our head, what our Lord and King and Christ is declaring to his people. Give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, will you help us to understand what we preach, to understand what we hear, to affect us, to change us, to convict us of sin, to encourage us in the hope of the gospel of your Son, and to cause us to walk together in greater obedience, greater holiness and love for our Savior, a greater sense of duty and devotion to one another as members of the body of Christ. We ask all of this in Christ's name, for his sake, and for our good. Amen. You take your seats and, and turn with me. Maybe you have two fingers as pointers today. Well, kind of something unusual. We're going to be both in Judges 10 and Judges 12. And you'll, hopefully you'll see why here in a few moments. If I were to ask you, if I were to pass out a sheet of paper right now, a blank sheet of paper, and says, okay, it's a pop quiz, a little civics pop quiz, how likely is it that you could name even half of our, the presidents of the United States? You, you might get a couple of them. I mean, the first one hopefully you'd get, George Washington. You might get some significant numbers along the way, maybe number 16, Abraham Lincoln stands out. But there are many, many others. You'd be hard-pressed even, even if you saw their name to remember who they were or when they served. But that doesn't mean that just simply because I don't know them and couldn't name them or you don't know them and couldn't name them doesn't mean that they were insignificant in history. I mean, after all, to be president of the United States is no small thing. Uh, Whether you only served four terms or four years, one term, or maybe even less than that because death or some other providential circumstance ended your term prematurely, it's still no small matter to be elected to be president of the United States of America. Sometimes we're tempted to think because a name isn't as memorable or because we know less about a man that his life is somehow less significant or that his position in God's providential rule of all things is less important. Today, we're going to look at at five men recorded in the book of Judges, known by commentators as minor judges. I'll use air quotes here. Minor judges. But by minor, we do not mean less significant, less important, or even less noteworthy. We mean minor in the same way that we would refer to Nahum, for example, as a minor prophet. Not because he was less significant than Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, but because he's simply shorter. The book of Hosea is significantly shorter than the book of Jeremiah. So Hosea is considered a minor prophet, Jeremiah a major prophet. That has nothing to do with importance or significance. So the title of today's sermons of today's sermon is Lessons from the Least. Lessons from the Least. And I'm going to do something a little unusual. My text is chapter 10, verse 1 through 5, and then we'll skip over to chapter 12 verses 8 through 15. And there's a reason for that, and part of that is setting up the sermon for next week with Jephthah. So today we're going to look at five of the six judges. There are 12 judges named in the book of Judges. Six are considered major judges. Six are considered minor judges. We've already, at the very end of chapter 3, considered Shamgar. And, And I devoted one sermon to Shamgar, but we now, with Shamgar and the five men that we'll, that we'll consider today, we will have completed the record of the six so-called minor judges. Lessons from the least. And I think there are three. You may think of others as well. But I think there are three important lessons that we learned from these minor judges. Three lessons from the least, if you will. First of all, 
is that God's goodness always prevails. God's goodness always prevails. Secondly is no servant of Yahweh is insignificant. No servant of Yahweh is ever to be considered insignificant. And thirdly, whether minor or major, all share the same end. Whether significant or seemingly insignificant, they all come to the very same end. So read with me, if you will, chapter 10 of the book of Judges. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to jump over to chapter 12 and read verses 8. Well, you know what? I'm going to read verse 7. Mentions the depth, the death of Jephthah. And I'll read through the end of that chapter. So hear now uh, the word of our God. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Puah, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. Now jump over with me to chapter 12, verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years, then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died, and he was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons, who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. Thus the reading of God's word. We start with the presupposition that all Scripture is God-breathed. Every last word is breathed out by the Spirit of the living God, and not only breathed out, but profitable for us useful to us, not only for our instruction, but for our correction, our rebuke, for our training in righteousness. So we begin with that vantage point, which helps us as we're reading through, whether it's in a sermon or even just on your own, reading through the book of Judges. And you might be tempted to come to a passage like chapter 10, 1 through 5, and chapter 12, 8 through 15, and, and in your mind, you may be thinking something like yada, 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 yada. So-and-so lived and died, and there's really nothing known about them, so let's get on to Samson, where there's much that we can consider. But there are always lessons from the Word of God. There is not one extra word, there's not one useless word, there's not one unprofitable word in all of Scripture. So how do we think about these things? Well, we notice in the first place, and the first lesson I think we learned from these least of the judges, the first, lessons from, the first of the lessons from the least is God's goodness always prevails. Now, where, does, where do I get this? Look back at chapter 10. Look at the very first two words are in chapter 10. After Abimelech. Now, what would you suppose would come after Abimelech? We looked at Abimelech last week. I mean, a reign of terror in many respects. He killed and burned an entire city, sowed it with salt to make sure it would never be fruitful again. He killed men and women and children. He set fire to a, to a, a tower and, and brought to death a thousand men and women and children in just a few moments. He systematically, one by one by one, executed 69 of Gideon's 70 sons. 69 of his own brothers. He would have done 70, but the youngest would happen to escape. 
the kind of atrocity, the kind of brutality, the kind of wickedness and pride and arrogance on display with Abimelech, what would you suppose would come after that? Nothing good, right? But God. But God. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. After all that had happened with Abimelech, God displays his goodness and his mercy to his people with 23 years of peace. God brings peace. God's goodness, as it were, bursts forth on the pages of history. And this is not the only time. This this theme happens again and again and again. King David, for example, understood the nature of trials and tribulations. King David understood both prosperity and power and success and peace, but he also understood very well the terror of being chased like a dog, hunted like an animal. He understood very well what it, was, what it was like to be driven from his own palace by his own son. And in Psalm chapter 30, in verse 5, David declares, speaking of the Lord's character, of his goodness, he says, but his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. There is always a goodness in God, even when we don't see it, even when the present circumstances don't seem to reveal that to us. There is, because God is good, there is a goodness in the world that cannot be held back. Fast forward in history to Jeremiah. You know Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? Jeremiah, who was told at the beginning of his ministry by the Lord, you're going to preach for your entire life and not have a single convert. No one's going to listen to you. In fact, not only are they not going to listen, it's going to get worse. How's that for pastoral encouragement? It's going to continue to get worse. It's going to continue to get worse. In fact, it got so bad that Jeremiah was an eyewitness to unspeakable tragedies that took place when Jerusalem was ultimately sacked. Women were reading their own children. And Jeremiah, in the midst of that great sorrow, turn to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations, immediately after the book of Jeremiah. Lamentations chapter 3. Think about all that Jeremiah has seen. All that he's heard. All that he's witnessed. He says in chapter 3, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Now, that's a short little statement, but understated. If you've read any of Josephus' accounts, the historian Josephus' accounts of, of the sack and the destruction of, of Israel, it's horrifying what took place. Jeremiah says, I'm the man who has seen it. I've been under the rod of his wrath. Verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. You had enough yet? There's more. Verse 16, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So my hope, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction 
and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but I, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Listen to this. Listen to what Jeremiah preaches to himself. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In the midst of unspeakable misery. Not just metaphorical misery. Not just misery of soul. But he literally says, my body's wasting away. He was starving. He had seen all kinds of of man betraying man. All kinds of calamities. And yet in the midst of this, he said, I call this to mind, and this is the reason I have hopes. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It never ceases. It never ends. God's goodness cannot be restrained. God's compassion to his people cannot be held back. And saints, whether, whether your sorrows have, have been, to, to whatever magnitude, whether those have been financial sorrows or relational sorrows, you've, you've felt the, the sting of betrayal. You've, you've lost your health. You've struggled with your own sin and the consequences of it. In the midst of all that, that just seems to press upon you, press upon you, press upon you. Will you remember as Jeremiah did? This is the reason I have hope. I call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord himself is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. After Abimelech comes the goodness of God. After misery and sorrow comes redemption, comes rescue, comes deliverance. Brothers and sisters, as you meditate upon God, remember above all his goodness. Will you train yourself? This takes training. You know, in any discipline, in any any enterprise, if you to to invoke or to endeavor to, to take on a trade or any particular field of education, whether it's engineering or the arts, you have to begin to train yourself to see certain things. You have to train yourself to hear certain things. You have to discipline your mind to be attuned to things that the average person would miss. It's similar with the eyes of faith. We have to be trained. We have to be conditioned. We have to be schooled in these things so that we can be learn, beginning to, we begin to learn how to see the goodness of God. I mean, train yourself to look at creation. To look at the world around you. The heavens declare the majesty and the glory and the dominion of God. Paul says in Romans 1 that even his invisible attributes are plain, even to the natural man, even to the lost man, can see, can look to the heavens, to look to creation and see that God is good. I mean, as I even hear the voice of, of, of infants in our midst, and I think, you look into the face of a child, you look at the smile of an infant, you look into the twinkle of an eye and say, God is so good. You can see the goodness of God, not because the creature is good, but because the one who made that boy, that girl, is good. If you look at a sunset, and you see all the colors just burst out into the sky, and you think, who did that? Who would make something so beautiful to behold? Only a God who is good would do that. We were 
driving out the other day, and, and there are deer all over our neighborhood, and for no reason in particular, there are deer just bouncing and prancing and chasing one another around. You go, why would a deer do that? Because God is good. The one who made them is good, and it bursts forth even in creation. But far more than that, far more than we see in the book of nature, we see in God's special revelation to us, his certain, sufficient, and infallible word, all the way through from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the very end is a full declaration of God's goodness, of his steadfast love. We look to his infallible, unchanging word, and we read and we hear and we behold the goodness of our God. I love the way that Psalm 27 ends. Here, David is contemplating all that he has been through. He's, he's very likely in exile at the very moment he writes this. In the very last two verses, he says, I would have despaired. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. David believed not only in eternity would he see God's goodness, but today, in this world, in this age, he would see the goodness of God. And, and, and David concludes with this, hope in Yahweh, be strong and let your heart take courage. Hope in Yahweh. The very first lesson from the least is the goodness of God. And the goodness of God will not, cannot be constrained. Even after Abimelech. God will make himself and his goodness known to men. There's a second lesson, though. There's another lesson from the least. Not only God's unchanging goodness, but we also see that no servant of Yahweh is insignificant. There's no servant of Yahweh that's insignificant. We turn back now to Judges chapter 10. We know very little about these particular men. We know very little for example, about Tola, other than his father's name, where he lived, and how long he reigned, and where he was buried. After him, Jair. Again, a little bit more information. We know he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. He had 30 cities. We know where he was buried. You turn to chapter 12. The same of Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And they remind us there are times when certainly you may feel insignificant. You look at the world around you and feel, I just feel so small. I look at all the things going on around us. As we looked in Sunday school this morning, the book of Esther, and we see this picture of Ahasuerus, this Xerxes I, the mighty king of Persia. And compared to him, in all of his grandeur and glory and wealth and power, everything else seems so small. So tiny, so insignificant. We're tempted to think that way, aren't we? Not only individually, but we can think that way corporately. We can think that way as a church body. So, well, who is GFBC Conroe? In the grand scheme of things, who are we? We are so insignificant, so small in the overall scheme of the world or the kingdom of God. And as if we think, would the world even know if we were gone? Would the world even notice if any one of us just disappeared? And in some sense, humility requires us to be honest and admit that there is a sense in which that is true. The world would continue. You could pluck me out, and the world would continue. This church would continue. Even my family would continue. It's like putting your, your finger into the ocean. The ocean doesn't even know you're there. When you pull it out, it can't tell you left. And all of life in some way is like that. Have you ever been to a graveyard and just kind of walked around and looked at the tombstones? Especially some of the older graveyards. And you just wonder. Here's John Q. Smith. 1820-1902. And the whole life is that dash. An entire man's existence, a woman's entire existence is the dash. And that's all you know. You know now where they're buried. I'm standing there. You know when they were born, when they died, and that's about it. They're gone, and the world continues. But on the other hand, we say there's no such thing as someone who is an insignificant servant of Yahweh. And it is only in the service of God that our lives find significance. 
all of his servants are useful and profitable in his hands. We learn from Tola, we learn from Jair, we learn from Ibzon and, and Elon and Abdon that every life may be used of Yahweh to accomplish his purposes, even if no one else ever sees, even if no one else ever knows, even if no one even knows they existed. I mean, how would we know if God hadn't told us here in his word that, that Ibzon had even existed? Or, or Elon or Abdon. From the fall onward... Man has set about exalting himself. From the, from the very beginning, we saw that. Uh, of the sons of Cain, we're told Lamech was the first to have two wives. To exalt himself, to make himself more important, to make himself more noteworthy. And then we keep, we keep going to that, that, pro, that progression or that digression. You come to the, the narrative in chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel. And here all the, all the peoples gathered themselves together, purposing to build bricks and make this tower into heaven. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And listen to this, and let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Fallen man's heart yearns to make a name for himself, to exalt himself, to, to accumulate for himself fame and notoriety, and human nature remains unchanged. And even when we become followers of Christ, is it not true that, that the desire is still there to make a name for ourselves? Don't we want our own name in lights? Don't we want our, just once have my name on the side of a building? That, that, that desire is, is there, isn't it? Dale Davis quips, he says, we have never gotten over the garden. Our program to unseat the true king has a way of slipping out from behind our largest fig leaves. That desire to exalt ourselves. You know, and we have a culture that has been, it's like we've poured fuel, jet fuel, on that fire of human nature that wants to exalt himself. And we've put apps on every phone that allows you to do just that. To exalt yourself. We have a social media culture that's obsessed with likes and followers and sometimes an, an entire human worth is sort of measured in those terms, isn't it? How many followers do you have? On Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, or wherever. How many followers? And, and, and too many, even among Christians, are focused on becoming influencers. That's my least favorite term these days. To so become an influencer. What have you done? Well, nothing. I just have a bunch of people that follow me and influence. What does that even mean? And even Christians are prone to this. Rather, we, we, we lust after those things rather than purposing to grow in a quiet holiness and service to God and to his people. But doesn't the Bible consistently call us to obscurity? Doesn't the Bible consistently, repeatedly call us to make another's name famous and not our own? In the book of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, the teacher Perhaps Solomon, better is a handful of quietness, chapter 4, than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Isn't it better to have one small handful of quietness than two big handfuls of toil and striving after the wind? In fact, Paul, when he wrote to the, to the church at Thessalonica, a church just, just sort of being driven in some ways by the wind of their own culture, because this isn't new. This isn't a phenomenon that's, that's unique to the age of Instagram or Facebook. This, is, this, this has been a, a, a besetting sin of the human heart since the fall. But Paul says this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So Paul says, you already know the basic command. You know to love. In fact, you've given tangible expression to that by your outpouring generosity to the church, churches in Macedonia. Even out of your own poverty, you gave. But, you knew there was a but, right? But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. 
to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. And I think there's a message that that needs to be pressed in upon the church of Jesus Christ in our age. It's that. Church, will we aspire to lead a quiet life? Will we actually aspire to obscurity? Will we be satisfied to live a life in service to our king that no one outside of our immediate circle even knows? Will we, will we live in such a way in faith that says, my God will use my labor towards him and for him and on behalf of my brothers and sisters to accomplish all of his holy purposes, whether anybody else on the planet ever knows my name or not. I don't need to aspire to be an influencer. I don't need to, be, to aspire to have many followers. I need to aspire to live a quiet and peaceful life. To walk properly before outsiders. Now think about this. When you add up these five minor judges that we have here in chapters 10 and chapter 12, we add them up, they accumulate to 70 years of peaceful rule. That's no small number. It's no small number at all. Sometimes we, we want to look at any one individual person and say, well, I don't, I don't know anything about this man. He must be insignificant. We add their labors together under the providence of God. Seventy years of peaceful rule. But isn't this the idolatry of our hearts? The entire Bible, the entire Bible, the message of it is look to God. Behold your God. And yet we come to a, to a narrative like this. We say, well, but I'd really like to look carefully at Ibzan. I really would like to focus carefully on him. I wish I had more information. I wish I had a whole biographical sketch on Ibzan because I really want to be devoted to him. Or Abnon. Or Elon. Or Jair. And God is all the while saying, look at me. Look to me. Look to the way I have revealed myself fully, perfectly, completely in the person and work of my own son. There is no such thing as an insignificant servant of Yahweh. In fact, the paradox that Jesus reveals to his disciples in various forms, but it's the same paradox. If you desire to live, what's going to happen? You'll die. If you're willing to die for my sake, what's going to happen? You'll live. Those who aspire to live a quiet and peaceful life, Jesus is blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not the popular one, not the one with all the, with the most followers. The meek, the poor in spirit. So that's the second lesson from the least of the judges. First of all, the goodness of God will not be constrained. It will not be held back. But secondly, there is no insignificant servant. We may use the term minor, and it's perfectly fine to use the term minor, but we ought not to attach to that a value judgment. There is no such thing as a minor servant in the kingdom of heaven. Third lesson. The third lesson from the least, and it's this. Whether mighty or great, whether obscure or weak, all men share the same end, and it's death. And we've seen this through the book of Judges, but what happens here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and chapter 12, verses 8 through 15, is they get stacked upon each other in in, in rapid-fire sequence. Minor and major judges alike share the same end. So here, in just these two short passages, we meet the deaths of six men. And this this is added to what we've already been told in the book of Judges. We're recorded for us the book, the, the death of Joshua, of Othniel, of Ehud, Gideon. Now, we read that Tola died. Jair died. Jephthah died. Isban died. So too, Elon died. And Abnon died after him. And I think we all know, in fact, the older we get, we know this more and more and more, that both literature and life gives us seasons of death. 
And for some of you, you've walked through those seasons where it just seems like, like, like waves on the seashore. One death follows another death, follows another death. And you have this sense of, all I ever do is go to funerals. And when death seems to come, wave after wave, like the rush of the surf on the beach, do we take note in those times of the inevitability of our own demise? The inevitability of the shortness of our own lives. songwriter by the name of Lori McKenna penned these words. Babies grow up. Houses get sold. That's how it goes. Time is a thief. Pain is a gift. The past is the past. It is what it is. Every line on your face tells a story somebody knows. That's just how it goes. You live long enough, and the people you love get old. It's the inevitability. And, and one of the things that Judges 10 and, 15 and 12 does by stacking them on top of that is we are pressed in with the inevitable conclusion. This happens to everyone, whether major or minor, whether popular or obscure, whether significant in the eyes of the world or unknown to anyone outside your own mom. You'll die. Young people, this is particularly pressing for, for you to understand, the longer you live, these become more naturally obvious. When you get up in the morning and you have the aches and the pains and the health declines and your hearing gets less and your eyesight gets worse and, and you begin to become more aware naturally of this. As a young person, your own mortality is the farthest thing from your mind. Gene and I were reading some time back this is not in my notes, it's just coming to me, that, that this, this discussion about uh, talking about death, even with your children, and even the idea of a young child, you know, four, five, six, going to a funeral. And there were, these were kind of popular Christian writers and podcasters saying, well, we don't think that's really appropriate. It's not good to have your kids exposed at that young of an age. Why? This is the world. This is life as it really is. And, and the blessing of even having a very young child, even before they're fully old enough to comprehend those things, but the kinds of questions that come. Kohelet in the book of Ecclesiastes makes this point that, that the funeral home is a much better instructor than a wedding feast. That we learn more in grief and sorrow than we ever do at a party. In Ecclesiastes 9, Kohelet says this, he says it's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As good as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. I love that. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Oh, what does that mean? Well, he tells us, for the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Kohelet has said, I've searched all the whole world. I've had, I've had wine, women, and song. I've had all the money. I've had all the property. I've had all the vineyards. I've had all the parties. I've had all of it. And I can tell you how it ends. Apart from God, it's all vanity. Every man comes to the same end. It doesn't matter whether he was mighty or unknown. One author puts it this way, writing about that sense of, of, of aging and the sense of memories failing and the sense of death coming close. He says, our lives have been long and many scenes from the past are nothing more than wisps in time, skinless things that we just can't grab onto anymore. There's a fleeting sense of life. And without exception, death is surely going to come for us all. And that, if we ended there, would be a pretty grim outlook, wouldn't it? But that's not where Judges ends. It's not where this sermon's going to end. And this is the world-changing significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here we have these five judges stacked together. Boom, 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 boom. And they all died, every one of them. And they've, they've saved Israel for, for eight years or seven years or 23 years or 30 years. 
but they didn't save them one year longer after they died. Once they went into the ground, their rule, their reign was over. But it was not so with the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate rescuer. God raised up his own son whose body would not and did not see corruption. So it is absolutely true. Christ surely died. He was absolutely dead and he went into the grave and was buried. But that's not where it ends. He rose from the grave. And that's why Paul could declare in 2 Timothy 1, the power of God has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now God used Jair in a magnificent way. He used Ehud, he used Abdon. But never could it be said of any of these men that they abolished death that they saved even one person in any way whatsoever beyond the time of their death. But in Jesus Christ, we have a deliverer. We have a judge who can rescue to the uttermost, who can rescue beyond the grave. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 makes this argument. He says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's one of the themes all the way through the book of Judges, from the opening paragraph of Judges, or I'm sorry, of Hebrews chapter one, is Jesus is better than. He's a better revelation of God. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's a better law. He's a better prophet. He's a better priest. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, we could rephrase this a little bit, couldn't we? The former judges were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing to deliver. But it's not so with the resurrected and exalted Jesus Christ. There's only one priest needed. There's only one judge needed. There's only one king needed. There's only one prophet needed because he rose again. Jesus is the one and only judge who can rescue beyond the grave. He is the one and only deliverer whose deliverance extends beyond the time that the end date is inscribed upon your headstone. He is the one and only deliverer who can preserve you to the day of his judgment and beyond that for all of eternity. His deliverance is not for seven years or eight years or 23 years or 30 years, not even 40 years, not even for a full lifetime. His deliverance, Christ alone can, and he has purchased eternal life for those that he delivers. So the answer that presses upon you this this morning is, do you know this deliverer? Do you know this judge? Not the one who who can redeem and fix your present circumstances, who can repair the, the finances or the health problems or the relational problems. Those would all be good and welcome. But you need a far better judge than that. You need a far bigger deliverer than that, don't you? You know you know the deceitfulness and the pride of your own heart. I know the wickedness of my own heart that remains. Things, to those who are in Christ, we need to recalibrate and, and cause ourselves, as Jeremiah did, to, to dwell upon the hope that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Say, this is where my hope is. This is where my comfort is. I can see all these things swirling around me and outside of me and inside me that make me shudder, make me anxious, make me fear my outward circumstances, even bring me to the point of despair. David said that. I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living to those who are outside of Christ, to those sitting here this, this morning, 
Say, I don't know this judge. I know of him. I've heard about him. But he's not rescued me. I've never bowed myself before him. I've never humbled myself in saying, Lord, I can't deliver myself. I can't rescue myself. I can't solve even my own earthly problems, much less my eternal one. Will you acknowledge him today? The Bible puts forth a very precious promise to you. If you're outside of Christ this morning, here's the promise. If you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He is a judge, a deliverer, a rescuer that goes far beyond the grave. Far beyond this these mortal bounds. He will deliver you. He will sustain you. But you must flee to him. You must hear and act upon what you've heard. You must confess your sin to him. You must believe that he and only he can deliver you. So we have these three lessons from the least. From the least of the judges, we learn that God's goodness always, always, always prevails. The whole world magnifies and declares the glory of God, but in a most particular way, his redemptive work among his people, saving them, preserving them, holding them tight in his own hand, reveals his goodness. Will you train yourself to see that? Condition yourself like an athlete trains? Will you condition yourself almost like a spiritual muscle memory reflexively to remember that? Not if, but when difficulties come. We train yourself to think, my God is good. And everything that comes from his hand is good. No servant, second lesson, no servant of Yahweh is insignificant. In those times when you feel like, I'm nothing, I've accomplished nothing, my life has meant nothing. A life lived to the glory of God for the praise of his name a life endeavoring to walk according to his commandments, to live quietly and peacefully before him. That life cannot be insignificant. There is no insignificant servant for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fathers need to remember this. Mothers need to remember this. In those ordinary daily labors, as the saying goes, the days are long and the years are short. And as you're raising and training those little ones, you think, is this all there is? This seems so insignificant. I'm dealing with the same problem every single day. Dealing with the same ordinary things. The washer's always going. The diapers are always dirty. There's always somebody who wants to be fed again. And you think, what's significant about this? Is it done to the glory of God? Is it it done for the praise of his name? There's nothing insignificant about that. And even as a congregation... You know, as a sermon runs long and we're hearing the, the, the chatter of the little ones, isn't that encouragement to us? God is displaying his goodness right among us, the blessing of, of fruitfulness, but also the, the hope of the generation to come. What a blessing that is to hear those things. And it can be distracting in a moment, but that's an encouragement to us to pray for one another, to pray that these, these things that seem insignificant at the time, that we are all engaged together as a family, helping and encouraging one another to persevere in those things that the, the world will tell us. Moms, I think in particular, the, the, the enemy has gone after our, our ladies and said, what you do is a, you're just a mom. What do you do? Well, I stay home with my kids. Well, you, oh, so you're just a mom? What a hellish statement to say that that's not significant. To say a life lived in obscurity, pouring out for your own children isn't a life that honors your king. And the economy of heaven is worth far more than any king on his throne and all the wealth of all the world. Third lesson from the lessons of the least is that both minor or major, every man shares the same end. When we, st- we, can, we can maybe overlook it, we spread out the deaths throughout the book of Judges. 
especially when a lot of them aren't named, when we stack them on top of each other. Jair died. Elon died. Isbon died. Abnon died. Jephthah died. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's the end of all the world. Until, unless the Lord tarries, that's, that's the end of all of us. Let's not overlook, even as you're reading in your own, your own devotions and your, your family worship time, there is always a temptation to, to gloss over some of these passages that doesn't seem to be a lot of information there. We, we're, we're conditioned to feed on data. Give me more information, more information. And when there's not a lot of information, we tend to think this isn't significant. But we train ourselves to think there's nothing in the Word of God that isn't significant. Train ourselves to meditate upon what He does show us and, and to meditate upon His character. And ask ourselves, what is God showing us? Not about these men. What is God showing us about Himself? What is God showing to us about ourselves and how we can relate to the one who made us? Let's pray. Our Father, our triune God, we praise you, our Lord Jesus Christ, you who gave yourself as our rescuer, as our deliverer, before whom we will stand as judge. We thank you that for those in Christ, we have the sure promise that there is now, therefore, no condemnation before the holy judge. Will you give us a renewed faith to believe that, to to be encouraged by it? And I pray for those here today that, that are not in Christ, I pray for those who have perhaps hardened their hearts against the gospel, thinking they have plenty of time to come to, come to, to, to bow before the gospel of Jesus Christ on their own terms and to come at their own time when they feel ready. I pray that for that one today, you would convict them and, and, and communicate to them by your Spirit's power the urgency casting themselves upon the mercy of Christ, not not presuming upon tomorrow. And for those here, even our own children, who have not yet wrestled with these things, who have not yet felt the weight of their own sin, that today would be the day that your Spirit reveals how dreadfully, desperately sinful we are and how urgently we need rescue. And today, for in the heart and mind of a young boy, a young girl, that you would, your spirit would, would convince them of the sinfulness of sin. Convince them of the exceeding mercy found in Jesus Christ alone. And that for your glory and to our joy, we would see those come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this for his namesake.